Hello, friends, and happy Friday. It's the Page Chewing Friday Conversation. Thank you for coming by and hanging out with us this Friday. Uh, a couple of notes. Um, we will not have a Friday Conversation next week. I'll be in Virginia for AuthorCon, getting yeah. into some trouble over there. So uh, no Friday conversa Conversation next week, but we will be back the following week and uh, for some more fun, fun times. I'm not sure about the rest of you, but I've had a hell of a week, and I'm happy to be here, happy the week's over. And uh, happy to be talking with some wonderful people today. So uh, today, uh, it's Nick and Tom joining us. Tom, will you give us a quick introduction? Tell us about you and your work. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, my name's Tom Mock. I'm a North Carolina fantasy author. And uh, recently, my debut, The Long Nights, which is a dark urban fantasy, was selected as a semifinalist for the SPFBO 8 with Before We Go blog. And that was a thrill for me. Uh, currently, that's my only, what would you say, like a feature-length, full-length project that I have published. I have some other short stories published, but that's the only one sort of like true genre work I have available. But I'm working on other works and projects, and I hope they come out soonish. Nice. I want to hear more about that. And, uh, and Nick, thank you for joining us as well. You're back again. I'm surprised yeah. you keep coming back. <laughs> I love it. I mean, why wouldn't I? You're great. <laughs> Hello, you guys. Oh, thank you. Um, thank, I'm thank Nick Borelli. Uh, I run the uh, fantasy and science fiction uh, book blog, Out of This World SFF. Uh, you know, I do book reviews, uh, giveaways, cover reveals, you name it. Uh, you know, all that tomfoolery. It's a laugh a minute. <laughs> and of course, Mr. P.L. Stewart. How are you doing, P.L.? I'm great, guys. Great. Just happy to be here. Honored, you know, love Nick's stuff, of course. And uh, yeah, congratulations, Tom. Loved your book, The Long Nights Fan. It's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, just hopefully get to read some more from you soon. And of course, what can I say about, about Mr. Steve, partner in crime? He's the best. So yeah, just happy to be here. You guys are too, you guys are too nice. You guys are too nice. <laughs> but, uh, but we were just talking about uh, SF. I always get the acronym wrong. This, but we're just talking about that about the uh, about the self-published blog off. And Tom, you're you know you mentioned Nick is a reviewer, and of course PL is too. But Tom, mm -hmm. what was that whole experience like for you uh, to be to enter in that competition? And what's what was that like just from start to finish? Oh, it was great. Um, I really had a good time with it. I would recommend it to anybody who's thinking about um, getting their work out there or really getting to know more people in the indie publishing space in fantasy and science fiction. I like, well, so first to start from the beginning, I only discovered that the contest existed last year, uh, right as it was wrapping up, it was in the finalist stage. And so I, well, you know, what is this? Wow, this seems like such a nice community-based contest as opposed to um, some others that I had entered in the past that it was sort of submit your work and then forget about it. And then months later, get an email and either be elated or more often than not, you know, a little depressed that it didn't win first place because nobody wants to settle for anything less than first place. I know you always want everyone to say your work's the best I've ever read. Oh, my God, please take all this money and just keep writing. Uh, but it, I, I just like so much that. There's a dedicated Facebook page uh, for the community around the contest. And you can really get a chance to know other authors as well as other readers. 
and that it's a contest that it has an ongoing nature to it as different bloggers and readers give each work its due more or less. Um, I, I feel like I was really lucky to end up slated with before we go blog that it was a, uh, you know, a site that I hadn't heard of before. So it was a chance for me to get to know that site. And I really appreciated how, um, you know, they had, I mean, PLU might know exactly, but more like two, three pages per review for every book, even books, sometimes the readers didn't finish just to say, you know, this is what the book is. This is what I thought about it. Um, and, and especially here's what I thought it was doing well. Here's what I was liking. Cause I've seen a lot of books that even got cut in the early rounds, get a lot of attention from readers just because the reviewer took the time to give them a fair review that said, this is what this book is. And if it's something that you're interested in, you should come and have a, a look at it. Um, and I was obviously really, uh, delighted when I got, I was moving hay at my parents' farm and Beth sent me a, a, a DM on Twitter to ask for a better image of my book because they were going to do, uh, she said at the time there were, it was going to be selected as a quarter finalist. I don't know how all that looked behind the scenes, but that was a nice day for me because I, I went, oh, wow, great. I got to get home and send this off right away. Um, and yeah, just, just the experience of knowing that whatever happened to my book in the contest, that I was going to have a review like that to look forward to, uh, was, was great. And when it did finally drop uh, PL, I want to thank you. I thought you did a really good review. It's, it's really nice. I got to say as a writer, not just to hear that somebody liked what you did, cause that's, that's great, but I'm always kind of suspicious of that. Um, not, not that they're wrong, but there's a part of my brain that goes, yeah, but I wish I would have done these things differently. It's really gratifying to read someone's deep thoughts about what you did and to see your work reflected back at you as a reader, like thinking about it and saying, okay, here's what this book is. Here's some of the themes. These are things that really jump out at me. Um, and that part of it for me was great. I was over the moon to be selected as a semi-finalist. That's very fun to say. I feel like it's definitely helped um, get more people on Twitter and in the indie community aware of my book because I don't feel like I've been very good at that. I published it in 2019 and in on Amazon US, they're still shy of 20 reviews. Whereas there's, uh, you know, authors, I actually think I'm somewhat contemporary with Douglas Lumsden of a troll walked into a bar fame. I think he published his book right around when I do, and he's on his fifth or sixth book at this point, And they all have, you know, hundreds of, uh, ratings, but uh, I'm slowly getting out there, but that's not the point. The point is that I, uh, yeah, it's just, it's been great to me because up until this point, um, because I think, I just have antisocial tendencies and I've never been really good at entering, you know, a room full of people that seem like they know each other. The competition felt like an introduction to all those people. And I really, I just couldn't have had a better experience with it. I was so happy just to be selected uh, as a semifinalist among the group of other semifinalists to see uh, Trudy Skies selected as the Before We Go blogs finalist because I was actually DMing her behind the scenes 
beforehand. Um, she was sure that she was not going to get selected. And I was just sort of pumping her up, telling her, yeah, you never know. You're, you know, you'll knock them dead. They don't know what's going to, they'll never know what hit him. And I, I got the chance to actually DM her. She had seen that I had been selected to the semifinals before I saw it go up. And I got the chance uh, to DM her when she was selected as the finalist, but she's in the UK and they put up the announcement at like 10 PM. So she was in bed. <laughs> and so I got to DM her and say, I bet you're probably asleep, but you're going to wake up to some real excitement. And that was fun for me too. And she's an author who I think otherwise I just never would have been able to connect with and I wouldn't mm -hmm. have known about. So I really, I mean, I, I can't sing the praises enough for the contest. It feels so much like a community contest. It's very transparent. And you, you get to follow along with the mounting excitement and enthusiasm and read now. You can go out and read now all the books that are the finalists right along with the judges and make up your own mind and, you know, pick your champion. Yeah. It's a great, uh, great competition. And Nick, what is it like for you on the blogging side, on the, on the reviewer side? Where, how does that whole process start or what's, what's your kind of, what's your, uh, your way of tackling all those different books and writing reviews for them? Sure. Well, I mean, for our team, it's uh, we get the 30 titles and then we have like four people on our team. So we we divvy that out, um, you know, and then maybe one of us takes the couple extra who are faster readers. Um, and, yeah, we each read our seven or eight books and then, you know, we'll read at least 25, 30 percent. And then, you know, if we decide to continue, we do that. If not, then that you know, ends up on the cut pile. So, um, and then each of us come up with our own, uh, our own pick for semifinalist. And then we read each other's semifinalist picks after that. So, and then we all, we have like a spreadsheet and, you know, we give, we give them all scores and, you know, the one that has the best average, you know, is our, is our semifinalist pick. So that's how we do it. Um, and then, you know, with the finals, obviously, you know, we read every, every you know, like everyone else, we read every all the finalists and, you know, give them a score and average them out. And, you know, we pick which one we like the best. How long does that take from to have your your 30 books and then to divvy them? How, does, how long does that whole process take? So we do it really quickly. I mean, honestly, there are some times where I, I have Kindle Unlimited. So if I know what some of the titles are on our team already, I will I will download those and start reading. You know, and I'll be like, you know, we kind of like pick which ones we we think we would like. And so I already kind of know going in before they're even divvied out, which which at least two books I'm going to get. And so I might I might start reading before the contest even, you know, starts. I might start reading the book. Right. So I get a jump on it. Um, it probably takes I mean, we go from June, July, August. Yeah, it takes about about three, three, four months to, to go through them all. Um, and like I said, you know, we don't, we don't put any sort of rules on it where we have to read the entire book. It's like, if you're not into it after 25, 30%, that's it. You know, that goes on your cut pile. So um, yeah. And then that, yeah, it, it makes it a lot easier. It's not we're reading like, cause a lot of these books are 600 pages and you know, there's just, it's unrealistic to, <laughs> to read that entire book, you know? So if we read 25% of it and I think I like it, okay, I'll read the whole thing. But then another one I might not read if, I, if I'm it's just not getting me within that first 25%, you know, I'm just gonna, mm, I'll move on. This one's not going to make the cut. So yeah, but it, it takes a long, it takes a while. And I have to think as a reviewer too, Nick, like you read a lot. 
-hmm. So you know sometimes when you're reading a good book that maybe isn't just exactly what you want at the time, but you still know it's worth continuing to read because maybe it could even win you over. It's not like you just go, I I don't think I like romances. This is too much of a romance. I'm going to cut this. Yep. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, Like you said, I've read read enough books where it's like, okay, this – you know, it's, it's a little slow, but it's not something that I don't like. Right. So mm-hmm. I like the prose. I like, you know, kind of, there's a, there's like a tickle of a story in there, like a mystery that I'm, I'm going to get to eventually. And if I keep reading, you know, this might, you know, so I'll continue, but yeah, I mean, and I can also tell right away <laughs> the things I, that don't work for me in a book. Right. So it's like over description, like is like the biggest thing for me. If I start reading a book where, <laughs> every sentence has like you know the 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 decaying the decaying brown wood you know stuff like that like they're just like four adjectives in every sentences and in, in every sentence i'm like no i'm out I yeah can't. I've had stuff like that you know it's little pet peeves of mine where i'm like I can't, I can't read i can't continue so yeah i know what i like by this point i know what's going to keep me reading so yeah you're right yeah absolutely yeah and and you know um uh before go blog very similar um as to what nick was saying i think we we did have a big team we tend to have a big team of reviewers 10 uh total i believe this year uh including beth and and one thing about beth you know love love the way she does things again just like nick was saying you pretty well there's a spreadsheet you pick the books you want you can read as many as you want or as few as you want you're not obligated to read the entire thing and for a lot of people that's not realistic as nick indicated i'm one of those serial must complete the book that's oh, my feeling not not anyone else i can't dnf a book i have to read the whole thing even if it's not my jam um because this, that's just my, my experience because there's books that have started out that oh i'm not sure and then i keep reading and suddenly i'm i'm into the book right and and you know and and like nick i have my pick peeves i'm probably the opposite because i love the flowery prose and i love the <laughs> i love the you know the really detailed uber description you know type stuff and and a lot of it, the exposition. But um, what usually hooks me is um, I love books that I feel, I mean, everything's derivative, but I love books that there's something fresh and seems really inventive that I haven't seen before. And that's one of the things I loved about, about Tom's book because it felt really fresh and inventive the way he was, the way he did it. It was like, you know, mashup, vampire, murder mystery, you know, torture protagonist. Like it had so many things that I thought were so cool. And I just, I really just, and the prose really caught me right away. And, you know, the the, the secondary character really engaging. And I mean, I I, I, I don't want to give away spoilers. I've read the book, but there's, there's a character that's, you know, just, just incredible. And just, yeah, and he's the bad guy. So it just, it was just, and and the form that he takes is just yeah it's just it's just off the charts i just loved it so it hooked me pretty well right away um i think uh, everything that that tom said was so accurate that the contest is just such a it's such a family affair and you feel like you're part of this community and like the whole you feel like the whole eyes of the entire self uh published fantasy uh you know community is on the contest and the hype and everybody's looking for the next review and everybody's looking to see you know who makes the cut and who doesn't and who's the semi-finalist and who's the finalist and it's just like 
it's just and then the thing of it is it's evergreen then it starts all over again as soon as you know the champions that then we're already talking about next year right and that's that's one of the things that I, I I love about it and and that excitement is so constant and it's so continuous um yeah I think SBFBO I definitely think that um you can really increase your exposure if you're someone who perhaps hasn't done a lot of marketing and stuff published out there hasn't done you know entered a lot of contests I honestly believe this is the one you do it's free it doesn't cost you anything um you know you know that automatically you're going to get 10 quality blogs very reputable and 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 well represented blogs involved right like the caliber of, of people like to like you know Nick for Nick's blog and that tab like the leaders of these blogs are you know they're, they're really absolutely these are influential in the community and um being influential in the community you know people are going to have eyes on your review on their website because they're they're posted on there and then on top of that there's all the cross posting and cross tweeting and putting out on facebook and beyond that i mean you know i always love this because uh i'm not sure if, if everybody knows obviously nick and, and, and tom and steve would but um so if you make the finals mark loris himself uh puts out this review on your book and he doesn't read it necessarily but he says hey you know this book is a semi-finalist uh, sorry is a finalist in sbfo it must be good you know you should check it out and there's links right and that alone is just i think worth the price of admission if you can make the finals and to get that review it's like yeah that's that's just yeah that's that's just the money shot it's just like yeah so um you know i i i i think that you know with the amount of and let's not forget with the amount of uh authors in the past over the last few years of competition that have successfully gone on to get uh traditionally published book deals just because they've been an SBFU and done well as semi-finalists and finalists and win the contest that alone it's just like I mean, I mean, what a what a what a plus, right? Like, you know, you, again, you have so many eyes. You the eyes of traditional. If you're looking for that book deal, the eyes of traditional publishing executives. Like everybody's watching this thing, right? So yeah. Yeah, I can I cut in? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to expand on what you're saying. I mean, it's become like now that we're we're in the eighth. I mean, it's become this. It's almost like the NFL draft. It's like. You know, the day where all the, the 300 books are picked, like people are like tweet live tweeting it and they're, you know, they're giving updates and who's this one, what groups this one going to go to and this one looks interesting. And and then during the contest, you know, like you said, people read along with the books that we're reading. So like other bloggers who may not be judges are also going to become yeah, by now it's become so big. Like, like, like that first day when he opens the submissions, it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to compare it to. It's like, right. It's just like, it's the NFL draft or, you know, something like that. It's like, people are so into it, you know, it's, it's crazy. And it's great. great analogy. Great. That's a perfect analogy, NFL draft. And, you know, um, you're looking as Nick so aptly pointed out, you're looking for your slot where your book is being slotted. And I remember when I went in, I got before I go blogs, before I was part of the blog and they're calling my group, the blog of death. I had, we had like some of the top self-published authors. We had Rob Hayes, we had Ben Galley. And you look at, you know, we had Clay, Clay Star. You look at this and like, no chance. You know what I mean? But, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to make it. Right. And that's the beauty of like, it's, and the, the parody and the, and the, the, the volatility of just because that person's a big name and they've won the contest before or semi-final or final doesn't mean they're going to make it out of, out of the, that's exactly what happened. And, 
some cases, right? So uh, the unpredictability is really cool. It just adds that level of tension. So yeah, but I mean, for Taylor, I know obviously she's a, a judge and an assistant editor, and you know this is her first time. Love to hear what she has to say about SPFBO and uh, you know the whole experience. <laughs> yeah, sure. So first off, sorry, sorry, I'm late. It's uh, it's become a, a thing, you know. It's early morning here, but I get here when I can. So I really apologize for for being late uh, to the guests. But PL and Steve are used to it, <laughs> so <laughs> for Friday conversations. Uh, but uh, looks like it came in in the middle of just everyone talking about Spiffbo. Was there anything specific you wanted me to talk about, or just in general? Yeah, in yeah, general. just in general. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, first off, Tom, thank, you know, congratulations for being part of the, com the uh, competition. I was, you know, part of the Before We Go blog team. So I was not part of the the people who, who read your book, but I heard really good things about it. <laughs> uh, it's been a really interesting experience for me uh, for many different reasons. I would say overall, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the slush pile that we got at Before We Go blog was pretty incredible. We really had a hard time choosing who was a semi-finalist and a finalist, and that's a good problem to have. So I'm not complaining about that at all. Uh, I think it, it's been an interesting experience in being a judge in an official capacity. I have written reviews for years and years and years, but more in a personal realm. So in a professional capacity, making sure that if a book didn't work for me, I can get that book to the audience it works for has been uh, an exercise that I'm still working to get better at, I think. Uh, I think there's a, a very big difference in writing a review for your personal, your own personal, for posterity or your own personal channel, and writing a review for the ex exclusively for the eyes of others, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's a very different headspace to be in. So I think that's been a learning curve for me and one that I'm you know, trying to get better at as well. But I've had a great time and I've experienced a lot of books that were outside of my comfort zone that really worked for me. Hmm. So I've had a good time overall. I'm trying to read all the finalists. I still have three more to read. <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. Just really, uh, really quick, I want to say hello to our friend Chris, who couldn't make it, unfortunately, not feeling too well, but couldn't uh, couldn't catch up in person, but happy to watch and catch up from bed. <laughs> and he mentions, uh, I think Tom's experience of S. SPFBO as an author is actually quite similar to the casual reader. Nothing is hidden in the process as the list of books is shown up front. This is pretty transparent. And uh, Jacob's here. Hey, Jacob. Uh, Jacob. I, was so, I was so scared I wouldn't get in. I time delayed, scheduled my entry email to arrive the second submissions opened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jacob's a two-time SPFBO semifinalist consecutive years. So yeah, quite impressive. Congratulations. <laughs> Oh, hey, Austin, Drew, Drew, hey, Lana, a bunch of oh, Lana, faces. oh, Lana, hey, everyone, mm -hmm. a lot of friendly faces. So, I did have a, a question though, because on 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 the on on the website for Tom's book, it mentions that it it is, um, it is the uh, runner up in horror. Is there a horror subcategory? I was curious about that. Is there a subcategory for horror and fantasy together, or is that how does that work? Um, oh, I mean, this, 
specifically, this was in the um, 2021 Indies Today Awards. Oh, and okay. they let you submit to more than one category. So I submitted it both to fantasy, but also to horror. And I thought that was a good idea because like PL was saying, it's it's sort of a cross genre work. And there's a lot of like capital F fantasy books in secondary worlds with castles and dragons and, you know, big magic systems that I could see, you know, really being so different from the book that my book would really have a chance to make itself known in that category. And so I also submitted it to horror because uh, it is in that space where it's, it's both, you know, since it's a dark urban fantasy and there's a vampire in it. Um, and uh, our protagonist finds himself in dangerous and potentially horrifying situations. There's a psychological horror element to it. I, I thought like that would be appropriate for the category. Um, since like supernatural um, fiction, supernatural fantasy and horror kind of blend over one and the other. So once you start talking about vampires and ghosts and especially goblins or other kind of monsters, it, it's, it's difficult to say exactly where you are unless you start to talk about the, the tone of the piece and its overall intention. Yeah, I understand, Tom, too, you're, I mean, you're, um, I think you have a master's in, I'm not, I can't remember, you forgive me, in, is, is it literature or, um, but, yeah. but, but so do you have formal training as, as formal uh, writing training as well? Like, have you taken writing courses and is that something that? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh, they had a lot of creative writing classes uh, as an undergraduate uh, at ECU I went to, and it was a nice program. I started out barely in music and that was a ton of work first of all like learning sight singing and piano and all i wanted to do with my spare time was write actually um and i i was lucky enough to in a spring semester i took a class a little creative writing class uh, intro to fiction and at the end of it the professor who was kind of a burned out hippie who among other things told me you got to smoke pot tom you got to do it don't do it too much but you need to do it for your writing trust me on this um i i told him he said oh i'll see you next year next semester in the next level of the class right and i said oh, i've got all this music stuff i have to do and he looked me dead in the eyes and he went get out of it what are you doing and i took his advice i said yeah maybe i should change my plans um and I had a great time at ECU's uh, creative writing department because you could basically make your own degree there. You had to take a little Shakespeare and you had to take a little uh, like pre and post 1600 literature. And other than that, you could basically take any classes you want. Um, so I took like intro and advanced fiction and poetry and uh, screenwriting there. And that was all a lot of fun. Those workshops are a lot of fun. Sounds similar to some of the stuff I was taking too. It's because uh, I did undergrad, not a, a mm. master's literature, English, but medieval English. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. The history was my minor, so yeah. So when I when I when I saw you know, especially you know, and and, and I I'm not trying to sound. Please don't think I'm sounding elitist at all, because it's some brilliant writers who have never oh. gone to post secondary that could you know write the pants off of a lot of people with with doctorates. But I saw that kind of with the prose. I saw that 
you know, that kind of, you know, that, 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 that perhaps formal writing training that, that I, I tend to pick up on when someone writes really good prose that maybe they have, have a bit of a background. So I was, cause I was really impressed with you, with your writing, right? So that, that, that makes sense. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's really nice of you to say. I think, I think actually to tell you the truth, um, some of that formal training probably uh, got me in trouble because those classes are very much geared towards academic short fiction. And, um, you know, that's not exactly how you need to write a page turner that's about developing action and characters in difficult circumstances. And um, I say in the afterward to my book that it took me a really long time to write it and I had to go through all these revisions. And part of the reason for that was because instead of paying attention to the story and driving narrative action, I was spending a lot of time, you know, in little scenes and with lots of description, like Nick, you were saying that you don't like, but the problem wasn't just because there was lots of description is I was putting in lots of description about stuff that didn't have anything to do with the action of the story, because I was just looking for something interesting to happen to like jump out of the page and happen to me. But then the problem was when I was coming back to uh, revise it, I said, well, I, I spent a month on this chapter. I, I need to keep all this stuff. It's so important to the characters and the tone of the piece. And then I'd show it to someone, then they'd go, it gets really boring in the middle, I'm sorry. Or I'd give it to a friend and I'd check up with them to be like, are you still reading it? And they'd kind of go, oh, I, I stopped, I don't know. Hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's not like a silver bullet. I would imagine that balance is pretty important. Sorry, Steve, yeah. go ahead. No, I was gonna say the same thing, no, go ahead. Well, I would just imagine that the balance is pretty important depending on what you want from it, right? So I um, I was not a, a um, sort of English major in university. I was a linguistics major, but I took a lot of um, Victorian literature classes. I've, there was a teacher that I loved there that um, just made me want to take his classes over and over again. <laughs> but uh, talk about books that spend a long time on things that don't move plot forward. <laughs> That's Victorian literature for you. <laughs> so I find it really interesting how that can truly work and bring joy to people who go into it expecting that. But if it's not what you expect, or if it's not what your aim is, it can derail the whole situation kind of as you described. So I find it so interesting balancing, you know, because clearly you have the ability to use those techniques, but balancing when to use them and purposefully applying them seems so important when you have a specific goal in mind, depending on the genre you're going for or the type of story you're trying to write. Um, I've never been a writer, but I imagine everyone speaks of it as a craft, right? Something you have to work to get better at. And I imagine that's a huge part of it um, and getting that feedback from people as well. It's also pretty big. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and it's so different. Like, and I mean, we all read different sorts of books. You know, you can pick up uh, Malazan, Malazan, sorry, pronouncing correctly. And you have kind of the perfect storm, right? Like you have, in some cases, these really punchy, action-filled parts, and then you have these long expository parts, and you have all these characters and all these different subplots and all these major plots and all, and, and like, you know, and then you may read something and it's like, what does this have to do with anything that's going on now? 
but it may be relevant next book or six books later. And sometimes if you remember, it may enrich your experience and sometimes it may go right over your head. And, you know, so I think, I think that's the beauty of literature that there's all kinds of books that you can enjoy. And I find that when you're writing fantasy, especially if you're, especially writing these big immersive long series where you have all these characters and all these different, you know, payoffs that don't happen to book four. And, you know, like that, that can be where I think uh, some people go, Oh, you know, on tapping out, it's 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 too much for you, right? Especially if you're like a plot-driven reader, reader, you want to keep going, you want to get to the next next thing, right? So, it also depends on the mood you're in as a reader. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off again, Steve. I feel like we, <laughs> no, okay. we keep starting to talk at the same time. <laughs> um, I was just gonna say I'm currently rereading Jade City. Um, I'm very excited. I have a live tomorrow over on. Um, Dear Dr. Fantasy, Mr. Phil Chase's channel about it. And uh, I love that series, so I'm going in with a bias already. But it is one of those series that does kind of what you mentioned, where it's it'll be fast-paced action, and then we stop and do these little tiny scenes with the characters. And without them, it wouldn't be the book that the amazing book that it is. But uh, balancing that pacing is something that I'm noticing Fonda Lee is just... She's so good at it. <laughs> Coming back to the book now. Starting that soon. Starting that, I think maybe next week. Starting Jade Wars. Oh, so, I yeah. can't wait. Yeah, yeah, starting it soon. Yeah, me too. I, I picked it up on a friend's recommendation just uh, for Christmas. It's one of the books I asked for. I'm just such a slow reader. Oh, it takes okay. me so long to get to new stuff. Mm-mm-mm. I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Nick? How did you start, or why did you? I guess. Why did you start the blog? What what made you get into this uh, into this hobby? I mean, it was just a uh, honestly like I worked at a bookstore um, for a long time, and I was surrounded by all these like minded people who you know I could talk to during our lunch break at the bar after work. You know, it was great. I was surrounded by all these bookish people, and um, <clears throat> once I left there, I just uh, there. It wasn't, those people were gone, right? They were still my friends. Like we still talk, but like, I felt like I, you know, it wasn't the same because like I needed to talk, I need to talk about books like almost every day, right? To somebody. So um, I figured why not just start a blog and just, you know, as I'm reading these books, you know, just shout out into the void, put them on my blog, see if anybody cares. Right. So it's like, I, it was honestly, it's just an outlet for me. Um, I, it's just a way to express my feelings about, you know, the, the great books that I read. I love science fiction and fantasy and it's like a passion of mine. So um, I just needed an outlet, you know, and it's like I got lucky enough where people actually, you know, enjoyed my reviews, started reading my blog. I got on Twitter. Um, it snowballed. And then I got with this awesome community of book people here. So it's like, you know. It, for me, this is this is my perfect life, right? Like I just I get to talk about science fiction, fantasy books, and you know, with like-minded people, friends of mine now. So, um, and it's just, it's great. I mean, you know, so it's, it's a great outlet. It's, it's it's something that I really enjoy. Yeah, you write great reviews, man. I like your oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's always nice to hear. I, I'm really self-conscious about my reviews, and I think a lot. Really? Of people Oh yeah, I, I well yeah yeah no I get it yeah I am, I, I I am, mean I, I edit re-edit I mean I change it and oh this word stinks let me let me 
check out, see if there's a better word for that. Uh, da, da, da. Do I hit publish now? Is it okay? Yeah. Oh, I, I stress about them, but yeah, I'm always happy when people are like, Oh, you write really good reviews. I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. Do you do that too, PL? Do you go and re-edit and change words and is it painstaking? Yeah, like I put a lot into my reviews. They're usually pretty lengthy. And yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um I I have a format. So I think that's that helps keep me on track. Like I have my own little template, like I usually talk about I give an introduction. I try and like especially if it's an indie author or maybe an author perhaps that doesn't have the the notoriety. I try and say a little bit about them to kind of even introduce the author. Like, for example, this author, you know, say, you know, um, even if they have notoriety in, in some cases, you know, this author, for example, I'd say, well, Tom, this author won an award with Indies Today and is, you know, has done blah, blah, blah. And then I'll try and get into why the book or the author is, is someone you should really check out. And then I'll start into kind of a general plot kind of outline without too many spoilers. And then I'll go into the characters. Characters, all I'm a character-based reader, so characters are always the first thing I normally talk about. After the, the general outline or synopsis, then I'll talk about um, the plot, uh, the action, like what's the narrative like, the prose, you know, the themes of the book. That's huge for me because I'm a big theme-based reader as well. Like, if the book doesn't have, like, compelling themes, I'm usually not as engaged. And then I kind of talk about anything special, unique features of the book. And then I'll wrap it up and I'll I'll say, you know, my general opinion of the book. So having kind of like a template, a formula usually keeps me on track. So I don't have to think about what I'm going to write as much, just how I'm going to write it. So I find that helps me a lot. So yeah, that's, that's, but yeah, it, it's typically, my reviews are pretty long. So I want to give a book it's due, right? Um, authors, as I know, being an author, it, <laughs> man, it's, it's hard to write a book <laughs> and uh, it takes a lot out of you. And, um, you know, I want to give authors you know, do justice to their books. Like, you know, it's a very special accomplishment to write a book. So I, you know, I try and give them, you know, some feedback that's not only hopefully salient, but it's it's somewhat comprehensive, so. I am actually curious since, you know, most people here are reviewers as well, how you approach the timing of a review. So for me, typically, I write a review within the first 24 hours after having read the book, or at least the first draft of a review, if it's one of those that are like for Spiffbo or something like that. Because it might just be the type of reader that I am, but names disappear very quickly, even if I loved a character. Details, little things that I wanted to talk about. Oh, I loved this scene, or I loved this you know, device that was used here. I can remember the larger picture, of course, but those little things seem to disappear very quickly for me. So I find that if I don't get that on paper within about 24 hours of finishing the book, my review always is missing something that I initially wanted it to have. So if I'm just doing a Goodreads review, I might just leave it at that quick review that I did within the 24 hours, but then I'll go back and maybe edit one that I'm doing in a more professional capacity, but I'm curious for all of you guys, do you need to get it down quickly or are you the type that needs to marinate on it, think about it a little bit and then write it? No, I, I bust that thing out. Like, <laughs> like nor sometimes like an hour after I read the book, the review's done. I, I mm. honestly, like I, and another part of the reason why I do that is because I, 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 
typically at the end of the book, I'm, I'm feeling all these emotions, right? And I want to, I want to capture that in my review. And I can't capture that if I'm doing it two days later, right? So I mm -hmm. often like, you know, if I get done a, a book at midnight, you know, you know, I'll stay up an extra hour because I at least want to get like a rough draft of it down. And it may not be the final version, but I just want to get, you know, pertinent, you know, par just pa throw paragraphs down of what I'm feeling at that point. And then the next day I'll whittle it down and clean it up. But I mean, I think part, part of the important thing about my, like re the reviews that I write or the, is the emotion that I, that I feel after I'm done a book. And I want, I want to effectively capture that. And the only way I can do that is, is to do it fresh off, like, like finishing. So I don't wait very long at all. Glad to hear I'm not the only one who no, takes the time, the hour I finish a book into account because I'm like, well, shit, because I got to write right after I finish this. So I don't want to finish it at 3 a.m. Yeah, I feel bad. Yep. Wow. I, I'm, I'm not like it at all. Actually, I'm actually surprised, Taylor, because you take such amazing detailed tabs, especially I've seen you tab the hell out of some books. So I figure <laughs> like, you know, even if yeah, even if you don't. Yeah. So even if you don't remember something, you have those references. So I figured, you know, it would be a big deal. But that's interesting to hear that you need to do it right away as well. Um, I'm kind of the opposite. More when the book is something that it's funny. If the book really affects me emotionally, I tend to like park it. Mm -hmm. And then I want to sort out my feelings and then I'll come back. But one thing I do, though, do though that I think keeps me ahead of the game is that I usually take notes on the book while I'm reading it. So I'll get, you know, I. I have my set reading goals. I get this, then I'll take notes on just quick notes about a character or something I felt or whatever. So by the time I get to the end of the book, I'll have all these notes. So really and truly I can do it later. So that's just how I, I stay ahead of the game. But I find that it's funny, the more emotional the book, the more I want time to kind of take a step back and I might even read something else and come back to it because I, I'm one of those people that I want to say things like, um, if you like this book, this other book, that you'll probably like this book. And sometimes I haven't read that book yet. So, um, you know, like I, I tend to do a lot of com comparisons that way. So, which may or may not be fair, but that's just something I do. Uh, so, yeah, I, I tend to like park a book. And especially the book is really long and intense. And I read a lot of chonkers because I like chonkers. So... You know, when, you know, like I read um, Illborn by Daniel T. Jackson. Love that book. Amazing. It's huge, but it's fast paced. But when I was done, I was like, whew, I just need to put that down and like read something else and come back and write my, my thoughts later. So that's just me. What about you, Steve? Well, <laughs> my reviews are really short. I don't, I don't write really long reviews. They're, they're pretty condensed. So usually I try and, I try to let it marinate for a while. Like sometimes I go weeks without sitting on the right one um, just to let it, I kind of have ideas in my head of kind of things I want to remember, like, or mention and or things I liked or didn't like or themes that I pulled out of it. But depending on the book, sometimes I like to sit on it for at least a couple of days, but sometimes I feel like I need to, and then sometimes I'll, I'll let it simmer and then I'll, I'll more things will kind of come to me. There are more things I hadn't thought of before. So yeah, I, I usually wait a little bit before, uh, really putting it down, which you know, it's <laughs> probably frustrating sometimes, but uh, yeah, I, I like to let it marinate for a while. 
Maybe it's also the. Go ahead. Oh no! no. Go ahead. I was just gonna say maybe it's also the procrastinator in me. I'm worried that if I don't get it done, I'm gonna just be like, "Oh, it's been long enough. I don't need to. Write, I don't need to write a review about that. It's fine. <laughs> no one remembers I read it." <laughs> so, I was gonna say part of the reason why I also do it right away is because I'm often like I jump right into the next book. So, um, I just I feel like once I get into that story, my mind goes into that story, and I can't effectively write a review for the book that I just read. So I, I'm I'm like a chain smoker, except with books, right? I put the put the one book down and the other one's picked up. And I'm, and part of it is, you know, necessity. I've got like, you know, 8,000 books on my TBR and I got to keep moving because I'm a one person blog. So, you know, I, I don't have luxury of <laughs> like waiting around. So I jump right in and, you know, that's probably why I write the reviews right away too, just to, just to get it put to bed and then move on to the next story. Do you all, for all four of you, do you all read multiple books at once? I know that's something I've gotten into more and more recently. I used to be periodically fast, but now, because like Nick was saying, my TBR is so big, I read so many books. Now I've pretty well gotten the sense that I have three or four books on the go. I usually have like an arc because, you know, you're always getting arcs. And then I'll have a physical copy, which I prefer, and that I'm reading at night usually or in the morning or when I have time off, I might have a day where I'm lucky and I get to sit down and read for like half a day or something. And that's normally a physical, physical book. And then I'll have something electronic, like an EPUB or something. Do you guys read or do you have to like, I can only read one book at a time. I can't be in this world and in that world. Like, mm -hmm. how do you guys feel about that? I, I, I've done it. I, I don't like doing it. But at the same time, like you said, if you, if you have a ton of books... And I'm I'm close to the end of one book, maybe a hundred pages out. I'll start reading another book. Yeah, um, but I try not to. <laughs> I really do. It's it's hard. It's hard. But uh, I I try to resist the urge. But yeah, I, I've done it. This is one of those things. Booktube changed for me. I used to be a one book kind of gal, but that has definitely shifted. Um, I've almost always got two going now: an audiobook and a physical. Whether that's um, on my e-reader or an actual physical book. And sometimes like right now <laughs> I will have three because I'll have a physical book that I read chonkers as well. If you surprise, surprise, but, uh, that can't fit in my bag. So then I have to have an ebook that I can read <laughs> while I'm out doing things. Uh, so I'll have a book for that and then I'll have an audiobook. So I'm, I currently have three going. <laughs> I do have to be careful about how close they are to each other. I like them to be a bit different uh, so that I don't get anything mixed up. I haven't to this point, but uh, BookTube definitely changed that for me. Audiobooks were a big thing that shifted that. Yeah, uh, we've been dividing up our we've been having goals like chapters each week instead of doing just like all out so that's helped with just having a reasonable amount to read every week but if i'm reading just book after book i, I need i have to stick with one i can i can run like i can read like a horror book and a fantasy but if i read fantasy and another then my brain i just can't i can't do it it's too much for me i'm not smart enough uh yeah i can't keep up uh what about you, uh, Tom? Do you do you read or write different books or different projects as you're doing another? Yeah, yeah. I I I read. I'm like reading. It's so weird. I used to be the same as like Nick, 
um, and even I guess Taylor before where I would just read one book at a time and I would read it and I would finish it. And I was pretty dead set on finishing the things that I was reading because I, I was also a lot younger. And so I had experienced books teaching me how to read them and learning, you know, uh, having new experiences I wouldn't have had by reading them. But then uh, after college and especially grad school, uh, especially taking that Victorian novel class I took, I, I think I maybe, honest to God, finished two or three actual finished reading the book, two or three books in all of grad school. Um, I don't mind saying that because I got the diploma now. They can't take it back. <laughs> uh, but it, kind of, it sort of fried me for a little bit, I think. Reading was tough. Like I had a hard time settling down and just reading. Uh, I would find authors that really excited me and I could settle down and read them. But audiobooks, once Audible really like crashed onto the scene, that was great for me. Um, I guess I'm just a, a pretty good auditory um, learner because I can remember details from audiobooks really well. And I like, I, I drive a fair amount back and forth to like my parents' farm or in general, I'm walking my dog, I'm listening to audiobooks and that's been great. And so now as I've started to get back into reading a little bit with reading indies and then other published stuff, I, I have like the same experience as Taylor where I have, I have like an ebook on my phone. It's uh, somebody's indie that I've picked up and I you know, want to keep reading through those so I can get to know the community. And then I have the a paperback somewhere of an author that I'm reading. And then I have whatever audiobook I'm listening to. And sometimes because I also like to listen to uh, classics, I might get whew, hours into a Dickens novel and then be like, okay, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to listen to some more Malazan. And then I'll switch back and forth. Like I listen to all of the Mark Twain uh, autobiographies that way. And those are, I think, each like 50 hours. So you can spend a long, long time with them and break them up however you want, because it's not like it's necessarily a, a narrative. Dickens via audio. I don't know if I can if I can handle really? that. Oh, it's great. I don't have, know. No, they have some <laughs> really talented readers because it's Dickens, right? Really? It's got uh, it's uh -huh. got such cachet. They get performers mm. who can really knock them out of the park. Some old gray British man. Yeah. And who doesn't mm, want to mm, listen mm, to him mm. do a nine year old? Come on, it's perfect. It's, it's yeah. true. I just finished <laughs> Oliver Twist. It was it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I did uh, the importance of being earnest on audio and that was real fun actually there were some really good narrators for that one so maybe that's something i've never really considered victorian literature via audio that like to that degree that would be interesting to try <laughs> yeah it's funny sorry go ahead Tom. well i was just gonna say it's like a lot of a-list actors have read some of their favorite victorian novels and they've done like mm. a really good job with things like jane eyre or I guess some of the Russian novels and other things. So they're 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 out there. It, you might enjoy it. Hmm. I'll put it on my to do list. Our friend Matt from Matt's Fantasy Book. Oh, Matt. If Tom was able, is, if Tom is able to remember the details of Malazan via audiobook, he needs to be giving a, yeah. given a medal, uh, some kind yeah. of medal. Exactly. Well, so I'll 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 cop to something here. Is I got a couple of chapters into the Malazan book, and I decided I want to get it on paperback. But the reason for that wasn't because I was having a really hard time keeping track of everything. But then again, it hadn't gone back to anyone yet. It was just jumping forward to new characters. 
I really just, I wasn't a huge fan of the way the narrator was doing the voices of the characters and specifically the dialogue delivery. I felt like I kept re-performing it in my head where I felt like, no, he didn't say it that strong. That seems a bit, or his old men always sounded really like rickety, like they were about to fall down and die. But I was thinking, no, this guy's supposed to be like a guard of this house. I don't, I don't know why he sounds like Mark Twain. Um, uh, but yeah, I have heard, I have heard from people who have, you know, read all of Malazan that they don't understand how anybody could ever listen to that and keep everything straight. I, I couldn't, I could not listen to Mal. There's, there's absolutely no way I would, I would, I get lost. I think I'm on book, I'm a book, I'm, I'm about to go into book four. Yeah. I finished, uh, I finished Dead House Case. Yeah. So I'm about to go to book four and I, and I'm thinking about my Malazan experience so far. There's absolutely no way I couldn't read uh, Brandon Sanderson. I only read one of his books, Way of Kings. I couldn't do that audiobook. I couldn't do Jenny Wirtz, um, one of my, my favorite author, because she writes so densely and so lushly. Uh, I couldn't like those, especially those immersive. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do the audiobook. I don't, I don't think. But uh, but I'm curious, what's everybody reading right now? What's what's everybody getting into? Big, big deep breath yeah. Nick, like, yeah everyone's like all right well <laughs> go for it, no, go for it Nick. i just you had a big sigh before you you're thinking about oh what do i have my tbr go ahead what am i reading good work i'm um i'm doing like i said the reread of jade city so i've started that's my physical right now um last night i finished my my ebook which was, what was it called? Uh, on lavender tides basically a, a really, really fun indie. Uh, it's very, wears its inspiration on its sleeve. It's like a Pokemon um, based book. I thought it was middle grade, but it's not. There's quite a bit of cursing in it. I was very surprised, <laughs> but it's definitely written for people who grew up with Pokemon, uh, like my generation and want to kind of relive, relive that. Uh, and it's it was a lot of fun. So I finished that last night and I have to actually get my thoughts down for that this morning, speaking of reviews. Uh, so I have to pick a new ebook, which <laughs> I might go with Dragon Mage, uh, which I've heard nothing but amazing things about. Uh, I know it's a chonker though, so I'm, I don't know if I want to take on another chonker while I'm doing Jade City. We'll see. Uh, so I have to choose my next ebook. And then audio is currently Dance of Thieves by Mary E. Pearson. Um, it's one that I've had on my TBR for ages and it's one that i just need to check off it finally came in from my library um and then i do have one other audiobook that i'm reading very slowly with a real life friend <laughs> who uh who's interested in reading books and he's like will you read a book with me i'm like sure but it's been a learning experience how like normal people read <laughs> because i was like oh i read the first you know two chapters you ready to talk about it he's like no i haven't picked it up yet i didn't know i like a I'm not, I'm not ready to talk about it. I'm like, oh, okay, just let me know when you are. And it's been like two weeks. <laughs> so um, I have that, that book. Um, it's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Um, the same guy who wrote Sapiens. I love mm. Sapiens. So uh, I wanted to read his other works. But uh, I'm kind of sitting on that until my friend reads that. So I think that's all I'm reading at the moment. What you reading, Steve? What you? What you? Oh, what you uh, so I am. We're doing chapters at a time of the Great Ordeal. It's got the book ready. It's uh, yeah. They're here at my desk, and then I'm, <laughs> we're also doing uh, chapters at a time of Curse of the Mistwraith. 
So taking my time on those. Great and, book. Yeah. And my Kindle is loaded with stuff for my, because I'll be on some flights next week. So I plan to get a lot of reading in. So a bunch of stuff in my Kindle ready to go. What about you, Nick? What are you, uh, what are you reading? Uh, right now I'm reading Witch King by Martha Wells, which is really good. I have to say I love Martha Wells. Always been a fan. So um, I can't show the book because it's on my Kindle, but it is a great book so far. Um, almost halfway through and uh, it's getting really, really good. Um, very involved, not a light fantasy by any means. Uh, some underworld stuff, demon, demons, and oh my God, it's just right up my alley. So really enjoying that. Tom, what you reading? Oh, well, uh, right now, I'm the indie book I'm reading is Dust and Lightning by Rebecca Crunden. Oh, yes. Uh, it's a fun sci-fi. I'm only a couple of chapters into it. It's reminding me a bit of like a Heinlein book. I think that's how you say his name. Um, yeah, so there's like some planet hopping, but the tech isn't super futuristic. And it's not exactly, I guess it is kind of dystopian, though. It starts and you're our protagonist is on this like polluted launch pad with his respirator stuck to his face and, you know, soot collecting on his around the, uh, the hem of it. Um, I had just finished reading a, uh, a manuscript for a friend of mine, um, Jay record. Um, and I was I gave him some notes on that and I thought it was a lot of fun. It's a good sword and sorcery. I'm excited to see what he does with it. But he is a really big Wizard of Earthsea fan. And I had read that forever ago, so long ago that I felt like I needed to read it again. And so I got that on audiobook um by Robert Inglis, who also uh, famously was like the narrator for Lord of the Rings for forever until Andy Circus has recently done a new recording and i've been you know listening through that i'm about five hours through and i'm you know i'm loving it and i feel embarrassed for ever saying anything at all not dismissive but you know anything at all about it that wasn't just oh this is obviously one of the greatest fantasy books of all time ursula Le Guin's incredible yeah. i'm having a great time with it yeah it's awesome Le Guin is 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 incredible um boy i'm reading a whole bunch of i just finished reading philip chase's uh Book the way of Eden. Wow, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was good. I got to get that review going. Um, I finished reading. I just recently finished reading um, Gates of Hope by J. E. Hanford. Another great book. It's very. Uh, she's a fantastic indie writer. And I read um, oh Jenny Wirtz's book uh, five in the Wars of Light and Shadow. Grand Conspiracy. Oh, that was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, finished that. And I have, I'm also currently reading like really two anthologies. One's called Shadow Over Doggerland. Uh, the other one's called Shapers of Worlds. Uh, that's more sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, those are more electronic. Those are electronic. And I'm also reading The Skin by J.E. Hannaford. Wonderful. Wish I had the book. I should have the book here. The covers, her covers are just amazing. And uh, plan to get into probably next, probably Jade War next. That's probably going to be maybe my next read, um, you know, so yeah, we'll see, see where we go with that. But yeah. So many books, so many books. Right. Uh, Alicia is here, uh, Birdie in the Books, and uh, Alicia has launched, launched the new channel, so be sure and go check it out. 
congratulations so, uh, it's always congratulations. good to see some new channels and friends launching new channels and trying to get things going so uh go support that channel oh My friend joao is here good evening folks. it took me years until i discovered stephen pacey's narration of the first law trilogy to be able to get into audiobooks i've heard and nothing but amazing things about those audiobooks yeah, First Law is one of my favorite series. I have the second series, Age of Man. I just haven't got to yet. Age of Madness, it's on the shelf, but I, I haven't got to yet. But First Law, yeah, it's, love it. Our friend Joseph is here. Joseph uh, just started Iron Gold after finishing uh, Briefcases of the Dresden Files. Mm. Our friend Sebastian's oh, here. Hey, Sebastian. Uh, reading books with people in real life is wonderful. Just co-founded a book club with oh. friends, and it brings me so much joy. His books on my TV yeah. are purple prints. That looks really good. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we just had our discussion for that uh, a few days ago, uh, last yeah. week. Yeah. And our friend Aaron wrapping up Fool's Fate, Pride and Prejudice is next. Uh, Some chunkers. Chunkers, yeah. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice was fun. I read that for the first time. It was, you know, it was Regency, not Victorian, so it was outside of my range for a while there. But that that's a really fun book. <laughs> A great time with that one yeah yeah i was talking about that with my girlfriend recently i wonder if that book is the uh first incidence of the romantic trope oh no you have a fever i have to take care of you now <laughs> i don't know that's been used so much it's hard to know the origin of it right it's right. used to this day oh, it's like awesome. oh this is the timing someone's gonna get sick soon we need a <laughs> intimate moment so <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, this, it's funny, this SBFBO, there were tons of Regency slash cozy fantasy, like tons that really did well uh, in this current SBFBO. I guess it was the year of the the cozy fantasy. Blame Travis Baldry, I say, because, you know, he uh, he seems to have started a thing. Uh, he was on with Steve and Taylor and the, uh, a couple, well, a month or more ago now. December? Yeah. December? Yeah. And uh, it's funny how, yeah, then this F SBFBO seems to be the year of the Regency slash Cozy fans with dragons thrown in there and, you know, definitely having that fantasy element. But that seems to be a common uh, Nick, Nick and Taylor. I'm sure you found that, you know, there's like it was surprising how many did so well, even not that it's not a great type of book. It's just I didn't expect to see so many uh, go on to semifinals and finals. Interesting yeah. point. And yeah, we've talked about that before, but I want to get Nick and Tom's kind of thoughts on the cozy fantasy, where that may come from, or is it Taylor and PL and I talk about that a lot about what, what happened with that shift. So I want to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I just think that it's, I mean, it's just cyclical really. It's like a thing where I think at a certain point, five, 10 years ago, like Grimdark was like all the rage and, you know, with Abercrombie and, you know, oh my God, like all, all these different Grimdark authors and everything was super dark. And then, you know, people just crave, you know, other things when the, the market is saturated like that, you know, and they just want to go in another direction. I think people are always looking for something different. So um, I think cozy fantasy was just inevitable, really. I mean, it's just, uh, just another cycle. And then, you know, We'll go back to whatever, you know, it just it goes around, it comes around, we, you know, a bunch of books hit the market with the same theme. And then people are like, you know, I want to read something different. So, and I think that people are really caught up in it. You know, it's like, uh, it's always great to read new stuff. Like I loved Quimby Olson's book. I, you know, I just thought, I thought it was great. 
and it was very different and something that is out of my comfort zone, honestly, because I like the dark stuff and, you know, dark and violent, but you know, it just, it just hit right with me, you know? So, um, yeah, I just think it's cyclical, you know? What about you, Tom? You have any thoughts on cozy fantasy and romantic, romantic fantasy? I don't know. I mean, consider the times in part, um, people can escape into other worlds where folks are getting beheaded and that's great. And then sometimes you just want something that's just soft and it seems like everything's going to work out. Okay. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that someone messes up a cappuccino or something. I, I know, uh, I mean, I don't feel like I'm anything of an expert on trends in the genre. Um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm behind the times. I'm, I'm just watching it happen on the spiff bow and I'm seeing the books that are coming out uh, in the indie scene as well as in trad here and there. I know personally a year or more ago, I think I started watching a lot of anime again and I started watching really just soft, light, fun stuff. I started watching uh, Ranma one half that was coming out on TV. I remember when I was uh, a lot younger as just something that was episodic, that was light, that I didn't have to get too invested in, that wasn't going to like jack my heart rate up in the evening. Um, <laughs> but that was just like, just easy and could help dissipate some of my anxieties. And I, I could see other people having that same experience and looking around like Nick was saying and going, you know, there aren't a lot of books like this coming out right now. Maybe I should write one. And Sebastian had a comment. Is this cozy fantasy thing a natural response or antidote to grimdark? That's something we've talked about before. But uh, PL and Taylor, what are your what are your thoughts? Well, uh, well, you know, we've we've talked about this quite a few times, but I want to go off something that Tom just said, which is the idea of like anime, because that clicked for me uh, in a way that previous discussions like I hadn't thought of this before but as someone who got into that culture back when I was like in middle school um and now live in Japan it's around me <laughs> a lot of the time I'm not as into it as I used to be but something that has been consistent in that entire time since I've been uh involved in the world is in manga and anime is that slice of life does so well it consistently does well it sells well uh, you have the the larger names that people are more aware of, like Attack on Titan, which is very grim, darky. Um, you know, Naruto, some of those which are more action based. But there's always been a thriving market for slice of life. Uh, there's a manga about everything. There's soccer manga, where the worst thing that can happen is the main character misses the the main shot. You know, there's there's all of these subcultures of daily life that always sell well here and it's interesting to see how in the western fantasy world there's these big you know thematic switches that everyone seems to kind of be aware of if they're in the space but in japan it, it, it doesn't seem to be as big of a swing um it's con it consistently sells well and it's consistently there which i find really really interesting i wonder uh, I imagine that has some cultural bases to it, but uh, that's something that you bringing that up, Tom, just 
added a new perspective for me for this conversation. Um, but just to talk about Sebastian's question real quick, whether it's the antidote or response, I would say that that's a very accurate, from my perspective, depiction that, um, you know, the pandemic and everything, people are just sick of reading about more bad things. <laughs> and uh, they wanted something a little bit happier. I say they, myself as well. I love Legends of Mates and, you know, the cozy books that I read for Spiffbo, I also really enjoyed. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's a natural, natural swing, kind of, as Nick said. And I think, I think, I think, yeah, and going, you know, elaborating again on, on Nick's point, Tom's point, excellent points that, you know, and I've written about this in blog posts that, you know, um, I think Nick was was also highlighting that, you know, everything is kind of like a response to everything. The market gets saturated with this. And then, you know, we almost want to do an anti, you know, okay, well, you know, a lot of the authors that wrote uh, a lot of their early, really grim, dark, really popular, like uber popular grim, dark novels of the 90s, like the George R. R. Martins, they admired Tolkien but wanted to write something grittier, darker, where the heroes die and where no one's safe and where, you know, like they wanted, they, they, they directly wrote in response to, we want something we think is more gritty, more realistic. And then, you know, as Tom pointed, that's sorry, as Nick pointed out, then you get to this point where it's okay, well, we've had enough of that. <laughs> let's, 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 you know, let's time out. Let's just, you know, like as Taylor said, let's just worry about, you know, you know, what's the worst thing can happen, you know, the bar failing or, you know, like, like Tom said, like the Latin not working out. And, and I think, I'll, and then I, I definitely think as we've all kind of said, the pendulum will swing back to something else, right. Uh, depending on, and again, I think either Nick or Tom talked about world events, like, yeah, like when there's wars going on and, you know, there's food shortages and financial crises and people are just like, you know what, I, I get enough of that on, 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 Fox or CNN, I just want to, you know, read about something that's the world is not at stake, right? So I think that's, uh, but I do think the pendulum does go like this. And there will be after cozy fancy, I can see things ratcheting back up to, you know, more of a, a grim dark almost kind of. Uh... Yeah. And I, you know, like I even wonder though, because Taylor, you were saying that cozy manga slice of life manga in japan is just forever a category that people love to read i i wonder if we're going to see especially with indie fiction indie fantasy becoming more popular potentially um more genres that just continue to get a lot of work because like to, i wonder to what degree our perception of trends is dictated by what traditional publishing is really pushing and whoever their like big whale authors are or whatever you know series hbo is adapting because uh you know game of thrones was a global event on television um and i i mean it seems like there's just a lot of authors who are going to keep writing exactly what they want to write um and are going to make their own niches in and, uh, you know, they're going to get their readers and they're going to want to read Quimby's next book. They're going to find out what happens next with those characters or in that world or in that same space. That's an extremely good point. 
Um, and I think that you're definitely onto something there because one of the reasons I think that slice of life and, you know, very niche markets of manga consistently do well is because there's so many authors here. <laughs> there's so many. Um, if you go into a manga section here, there's going to be a million people you've never heard of, but they're still being sold. And I think that indie can have that same effect in the Western market. Um, in the way that there'll be a bunch of new authors on the shelf, well, maybe not on a physical physical bookshelf yet, but maybe in the future, or at least on the Kindle bookshelves, a lot more to choose from. Uh, and it's more of a direct connection with the reader. I like this thing. I'm going to pursue this thing. You don't have a middleman telling you this is the next big thing. But I do think that, you know, the marketing push is always going to make a huge difference because, you know, in the same vein, a lot of the things that I mentioned that are known in the West, like Attack on Titan or whatever, those are the huge publishing houses <laughs> in Japan, you know, Jump and a bunch of other uh, main companies. And those are the ones that kind of branch outside of the, the Japanese market. So I do think there's a place for both, but I think the options are definitely going to spread out. Uh, I think you make a really good point there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think not, in, not all at once. No, I sorry, I hope I didn't cut anybody up. I was gonna say I think <laughs> to Taylor's point, indie I think specifically has really changed the game for you know, in our space, sci-fi, fantasy core. I mean, it is just you know, it's blown their doors off of what's possible. You know, I I feel like, you know. It's limitless now, what you can read about in terms of indie and sci-fi and, and fantasy horror. And I never realized, like if you asked me 10 years ago if half my bookshelf would be indie, well, I would have said, well, what's indie? <laughs> but now, of course, and now I'm an indie author as well. So, you know, I think that's really changed the game that, and we have so much more access to it. And now the way we buy our books, especially through Amazon, you know, like, it's not like, I mean, if you wanted manga or you wanted anime, you wanted whatever, like something like Amazon, you know, I mean, you can buy shoes on Amazon or you can buy anime. So it doesn't, there's no limit to, you can say, okay, I want military fantasy. I want romantic fantasy. I want horror dystopian. I want, and click, click, click categories. And there you have it, right? So that's really revolutionized, I think, you know, what we're consuming and indie specifically, I think is, has, has really done that. What do you think about that, Nick? Is it something you can think about? Yeah. I mean, I, I love indie. I think um, it's just the thing about indie that's great is that there are no constraints. There's no, I mean, a lot of times I'm, you know, you might have a publisher, traditional publisher who, you know, an author wants to write a certain book and the publisher might be like, ah, that's not really, I'm, that's not going to sell. I don't think that, you know, maybe like go with elves or something, you know, like something like that. Whereas like, you know, like <laughs> that's what's selling right now. Whereas I think like self-published authors, the, the great thing about it is they, they can write whatever story they want and there's nobody to tell them that they can't. And so what you may think isn't selling, it's almost like, you know, indie is like, the experimental playground, right? We, we get, for me anyway, I, I've read so many edgy and just 
stuff that was indie that I don't think would ever get published with a tra with a traditional publisher. And I think that's what's great about indie. It pushes the borders. It like there's no one to stop you and say no. You know, you can't publish that because you know that's that's not going to sell in this market. They it's just they write whatever they want to write, and it's great. And I get to read a world of different stories. Um, so I'm not saying traditional public publishing is bad, but I, I really, I think indie is just, you know, it's, it's just, that's where it's at right now. It's like the stories are so diverse and just, you know, they really push the envelope. Totally. And our friend Austin, I love Slice of Life, so I wasn't too surprised by its success. If anything, surprised by what took so long. And Joao, if you listen to uh, Trad, Grimdark isn't selling. But if you look at Indie, you know that's not just that's just not true. And Nick, you mentioned about the uh, kind of the grittier, edgier books. One of the first ones that come to mind is The Eleventh Cycle, which I have a hard time believing that book would have been published by a traditional publisher. It would not. <laughs> I don't think it would. Yeah. It's really doing really well, though, it seems like. It's really well. Yeah. So many books. Um, you know, Gunmetal Gods, Emil Actor. He's selling that. Those books are selling like crazy, but um, a trad publisher would would have passed on that. Illborn by Daniel T. Jackson again, and some of these authors have already queried, have already shot these books, and not successfully uh, sold them. And they've said, "Okay, I'm going to self-publish it," and then they sell like crazy. I mean, I honestly think that now with authors like Will White, uh, you know, I mean, what Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> Funny, we're saying that Brandon Sanderson essentially having a publishing company and just being able to publish what like I think the whole game has changed now. It's 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 totally wide open, totally wide open. And speaking of Sanderson and uh, oh, oh. Kick, uh, Kickstarters, I was about to mention, but go ahead, Taylor, take it away. I think we're on the same wavelength. No, no. <laughs> I know we've been, we've said, we've interrupted each other for the same comment three times now, <laughs> but <laughs> I was going to say that Kickstarter, yes, uh, seems to have a huge, like, not stake in this, that's not the word I'm looking for, but maybe it would have been better if you said it, Steve, I can't get the words out, but Kickstarter seems to be important <laughs> in this kind of scenario as well with like Wraithmarked Creative, they've been putting out some incredible editions of books, you know, Brando Sando, you know, with the, the record-breaking Kickstarter, all of those, the ability to be able to do all of those things really seems to have helped not just indie authors, but authors maybe who were trad published, but want a special edition and trad publishing isn't going to go for it. So they're like, all right, I'll make my own special edition. That is a really interesting market to me as someone who loves special editions. Um, I'm keeping my eye on it. And uh, it, it really seems to be expanding. There's almost too much to track now over there. Yeah, I would love to see a return to more illustrated books, uh, books, you know, with illustrations throughout. I know it's just too expensive a lot of times for traditional publishing to say, we're gonna pay an author and we're gonna release a new edition. But I, I love all those special editions that have all this great artwork in it. Oh, there's AI now, so you no, never know. That may that may be coming back, right? Are you gonna drop that <laughs> that bomb right now? Are we allowed to swear on the podcast? Right we only have ten minutes left. <laughs> oh, no, we can. We can. Well, it'll yeah, it'll be more than that. Yeah, go go ahead, Theo. But no, I just I I want to put that out to people. Like you know what I know. Okay, I already said it. It's out. We we it's out there now. So, what do you think about this AI stuff? You don't want to know what I think. <laughs> 
Go ahead, go ahead, Tom. You can Trash. Go for it. I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. No, I'll yeah, wait. go for it. So we all on this podcast are part of an indie community, and we've been talking already about how much we think that everyone should support indie authors because this is the space where exciting things are happening. Anyone can do anything they want. Well, guess what? There are just like there's indie authors. There is no shortage of indie artists who are just trying to make a living with their art doing what they're doing. And you cannot support indie if you only go halfway and only support the people who are writing. We're all artists who are trying to make a living and you need to support human beings who are making things. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're going to see your next favorite artist. Because an AI is never gonna be your favorite artist. It's just trained on art that you like from people who are living experiences and then trying to distill it into something that excites in a human emotion. AI just sometimes hits and sometimes misses. And when it hits, it just kind of looks like something else, but it doesn't have any kind of vision. And I think that's all any of us need to say about AI. <laughs> Go ahead, well, and I, I, I say that specifically, I say that specifically because we're already seeing AI fiction that has been inundating uh, some of the small presses that have had to close down because they now cannot field submissions because they're getting too much stuff that's artificially generated, it's just AI. And I can understand potentially a reader saying, I just want to read fiction that's gonna take me away, right? And so if a computer can do that, why don't we let the computer do it? Because I don't care, I just wanna have the experience. And that brings up the other problem, which is that AI fundamentally is theft. The only way it works is you have to feed it a lot of other people's works, and then it's going to do a clever plagiarism of those works. Now, the difference is if I do it or if PL does it, we're taking inspiration from other authors. And the degree to which that inspiration uh, motivates our work and the number of different inspirations we have separates our work from being just derivative. Like if I read uh, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn and said, I want to do my Mistborn, here I go, we, that would probably be a pretty derivative work that you would say, well, this was okay, but I've seen it before and I think it's just this book. And I might even get a copyright claim on me if I was too close. But if I've read hundreds of novels and I've been watching movies and I've had my own life experience that I can draw on and I take all of that and I make something. Now we have what we consider a, a work of art instead of just a clever forgery. Yeah, I think the human element is extremely key there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's taking the human element out of art, out of creation, and it just feels fundamentally wrong in a way. It's the same thing with translation. We talked about this a bit with Ken Liu, but translation is something that is innately human, I think. It requires a human touch to get it correct. So I've had this debate for years and years and years and years with people um, as someone who loves linguistics. But of course, if you're traveling to a country for two weeks, use the Google Translate, you know, use the tools, because that's what AI is. It's a tool. I think it's it should be a tool available to artists who do this for their job, right, to help them in some ways, it should not be taking their job. 
And I feel the exact same way about translation. There is a, a necessity to the human element there, the nuance of language that just can't be taken over by AI. Just can't. That imperfection and it's trying to make everything perfect. And that imperfection, that human element, that imperfection is what makes things special is those dings and dents and it's a little beat up. It's not quite perfect, but that's what we love about it, right? Is that it's not perfect. That's for me anyway, that's what is scary. But I I do think it's going to, it's, it's, it's scary what's happening. I don't know that it's, it can be, I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle anymore. I think it's the toothpaste is out of the tube and, uh, if you go, uh, sadly, and it makes me really sad. I don't know if we can, if we can rewind. I think it's, it's already too. It's already out there. Mm-hmm. We think. Yeah, to- the toothpaste image is very. <laughs> it's a good one. I've never <laughs> heard that one before. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Nick, go Nick ahead. what do you, what do you think about this? AI? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it's it's gone. You know, the horse has left the barn there, and you know it's. Uh, unfortunately it's it's going to be pretty pervasive i think and uh i think it's sad uh, i'm i'm with most of the people here uh you know i just think it's it's that human element that is important and uh and you know the theft part of it obviously you're you know you're you're taking work away from other creatives that's you know artists or authors uh, you know, who are trying to make a living so um yeah i'm kind of you know i'm definitely anti as far as that goes. And uh, I don't know. I just think it, it's going to be problematic. I feel like I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I guess my hope is that, and I totally agree with, with, with Steve and, and Nick that, that the genie is out of the bottle and, and Tom and Taylor made some excellent points. The one thing I'll say though, is I think I'm the old man in the room here. So um, I, I would say that what my hope is that it's kind of like uh, it's like Y2K. Everybody thought that everything was going to crash and everything was shut down. And, you know, and if you go back uh, and read sci-fi books from uh, 30, 40 years ago, they thought that by this juncture in our history, we'd all be in flying uh, automobiles and, you know, there's, and, and a lot of that stuff has come to fruition. Yes, but it hasn't advanced quite as rapidly. And I guess my hope is that knowing that the genie's out of the bottle, that it won't advance quite as rapidly as we're all fearing. That it will happen. Maybe, you know, my grandkids and I, I have grandkids, maybe when they're my age, you know, but but I'm hoping to stave it off, off as long as possible that we're talking about most of the books on the shelf being by, well, I wouldn't have them. Like, I, I, I feel that way. I'm old, I'm old-fashioned. Like, I, I honestly believe that I'm not interested in reading AI books. And, and if it's choice between, as long as there's books by authors in print, living or dead, like physical, real authors who wrote, I'll have those on my shelf and I won't read the AI one. Because there's more than enough of those to read in my lifetime that I won't need to read AI books. But perhaps generations from now, I don't know, that may or may not be the case. So we'll see. But I just hope that it's a very gradual, centuries later problem. Our friend Daniel's here. A question a lot of sci-fi asks, though, is what happens when you can't tell the difference and we're really close? Yeah, that's probably the big concern. I mean, as we know, wasn't it Tor in the last couple of months had to come out and apologize because they say they mistakenly used some AI-generated art for a cover 
yeah. because it was in their, you know, file of stuff and somebody dragged and dropped it and you didn't realize. Mistakenly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, for Chris Paulini's book, yeah. Oh, really? Is that what it was from? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that that's a big one to put. Well, yeah, it was a big kerfuffle, man. It was it was all over Twitter. People were mad. Yeah, it was for Chris yeah. Paulini's book, and he actually um, a lot of people got mad at him because he kind of defended it in a way. He was just kind of mm. like, "Oh, I didn't know," and it's you know going to cost too much money to push the publication date out further. So, oh well. Oh, it's wow. it's got to be tough though when you're a traditional publisher, you know living in the golden city of traditional publishing and your advisors are telling you, Hey man, this is the deal we have to release, or, you know, we have to go through this whole process again. I, I want to sympathize with him because it's probably got to be a pretty hairy situation to find the whole internet mad at you suddenly, especially when you don't even really have much say in your cover to begin with. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is, that's an excellent point. You know, Tob and I, we get someone to make our covers. We do it ourselves. We get stock, we do whatever, but, when you're trad published and someone's telling you this is what your cover is going to be you know they might not even if initially tell you it's going to be ai they may just say yep this is what your cover is going to be oh and then somewhere down the production oh well you know what yeah we're going to make this an ai cover but they never loop back imagine not looping back with the author right and and i can see that happening like honestly happening just because of miscommunication so I, but I just think that, you know, um, hopefully we're, we're, we're a lot farther away from that point where we really, really have to worry about it than, than, you know, the next few decades. I'm optimistic, maybe. I think the concern now really is that potentially someone could use an AI to write the first draft of a novel Mm -hmm. that they say, I want the way of Kings meets any other big fantasy novel of last year and then they'll just come in and clean it up so that we can't tell it's ai oh wow and what we do about that i like i don't know because now if someone has actually put their hands on it and said i have to i'll change this enough so that people don't realize what i'm doing that'll be difficult to catch so probably what they just need to do is we have we have to have a new spate of digital rights where we can sequester our work uh, away from ai and say this is not available for the public's use. That's that's what I was going to say is I think the technology is developing faster than we're reacting to it. So another example of this is like deep fakes, the issue of people being able to, mm, I don't want to use words I shouldn't use here, but it used to be just celebrities that were put in sexual situations mostly with deep fakes, but now it's becoming a very personal thing where uh, there was a huge blow up um, I think I'm not part of the Twitch community, but it entered into my algorithm where um, it, there was a group of friends and someone was looking up deep fakes of someone else in the friend group in that context. And uh, someone had created those. So then there was a blow up where this creator then said, well, you know, released a video saying, I feel violated. I don't know what my recourse is here. And the answer was there is none. And so I think we're entering into this realm where the technology is there, but it's a free for all because we haven't developed, as you said, Tom, any laws or new copyrights or any protections for this new realm that we're entering into. And I think that is going to have to be the answer because the toothpaste can't go back in, (laughs) right? So we have to adjust to the new situation that we're in now and make sure that there's recourse for people 
and uh, if your work gets stolen, there's something you can do. Or if someone takes your likeness, there's something you can do. Because right now you really can't. No, I, th I think you're right. But we're so far behind on that. Like we, there's so many parts of, well, for one thing, the internet itself that are, is essentially unpoliced. I mean, we have, we have things going now whereby, you know, you have authors that have signed up for like Kindle Unlimited and they're, their books are getting removed because of, of people plagiarizing them, but it's not them and they're getting their books kicked off. But because they signed, like, you know, that's, we're still coping with things like that much less trying to keep up with AI, right? So that is scary. And that's an excellent point by, by both Tom and Taylor, but it is scary to know that we're so far behind with rules and regulations and trying to enclose that space that like by the time we catch up, uh, you know, I don't know. So that is, that is worrisome. Um, so that is worrisome. I quickly want to mention, I'm not sure if anybody has, I'm guessing if anyone maybe Taylor has, um, because she's a big Sandal fan. I'm not sure to what extent uh, the rest of you have. There was an article on Wired uh, <laughs> featuring, uh, we, guess we all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, what do, what do we think about about that? Uh, I already made my, my opinion is on Twitter, and you'll be able to read it. It's like <laughs> one of the first comments to that article, actually. Um, it's disgraceful, honestly. It's, uh, I mean, I... I'm not expecting like everyone to write a puff piece, right? But whatever. What I what I had an objection to was this writer, I feel like he already kind of had his article written, right? And no matter what, he was going to write that article. Like he obviously has something against, you know, Brandon, San Brandon Sanderson's fans or fantasy fans in general. He's got them all pigeonholed as like smelly, you know, con goers or whatever and he was just going to write that article and, and what really was egregious to me was the fact that you know brandon sanderson opened his home up to this guy right sat down with his family right had dinner with his wife and kids hung out with his kid right and then to write that article is is just the, there's there was no reason for the vitriol or there really wasn't it's like you know and like i said you know I, i'm not a brandon brandon sanderson fan I don't really like his books. Okay. I'm just going to come right out and say it, but to write an article like that it, 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 and to call yourself, you know, a journalist or reporter or whatever you are is, is just, in my opinion, I, I found it disgraceful. And I, I, I said, so I just not right. And he doesn't need me to defend him because you know what? <laughs> He's got tons of money. He can just, you know, whatever, like, but, and I thought the way he responded was really classy and it wasn't the way I responded and I got fired up and I'm not even a Sanderson fan, but yeah, that was, I thought the fact that he opened his home to him and just like, you know, to, to just take the personal shots that he did and to make fun of his religion and, and all the other stuff was just, it was just such, it's so unnecessary. And I, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. There, did I tell you how yeah. I felt? <laughs> well, as someone who's on the opposite end of, of the fan spectrum, I love his works. But what frustrated me was the pushback when people were defending him saying, you just don't like that. He didn't like Sanderson. It's like, no, that's not the point. People who are, are fans of Sanderson, like me, we are so used to hearing that his prose sucks. We're used to it. We're used to hearing that his writing is not good. So that's not something that upsets people who like his works and it's actually a, a valid criticism at certain points you know i can engage with those conversations 
what frustrated me is that the energy of that article was very much, I peaked in high school and I'm mad that a nerd is more successful than me. Like that was, that was what that article was. <laughs> and you, you cannot convince me otherwise. Um, so I think it was the spirit of it that was so angering for myself and, and Nick as well and, and most people. Because when you're reading it, you're like, did I just read those words with my eyes? Did he just say ill-fitting blazer for just just say blazer? Like, why did you have to put that descriptor in there? You know? That's so surprising. Um, I always thought Sanderson's blazers were quite well-fitted. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 you can, it, everyone can have their own opinion on his blazer. That's that's fine with me. <laughs> no, I, I would I would have no truck with his style. I think the man has a lane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he sticks it to was, it for sure. It was just so, and uh, you know, for me, religion is always one of those hot button topics. It is for a lot of people, and that journalist going after, essentially going not going after uh, Sanderson M Mormons. Salt Lake City, anything to do with Mormons, um, and basically equating to say like, well, your writing is really a cult because I think the Mormon religion is a cult, and that's all you're doing. You're just kind of regurgitating it's it's all analogous to the Mormon religion, and that's what, like that really was offside. Like that was like, I mean, I felt of all the things you guys already aptly pointed out. I mean, you you were embedded with the man's family. You're hanging out. You, you're staying at his at his at his place you're 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 you're, you're eating with this like it, it was but of all the things that was all horrible but of all the things that i, I for me personally that i really took offense to was that you know hey listen if you have an issue with a religion okay that's fine like you're entitled to your opinion but to attack the man because of it and to attack your issues with that religion thus attack his writing ergo attacking his writing like that was like it was really really offside and frankly i like I didn't think that the the journalist was that well written. Like I didn't think that his article, all his article was all, all over the place. place. It was meandering. It, it was really like, is. yeah. And 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 I'm one of those guys who, again, like Nick, I am not a big set. Taylor knows this. I, I we're going to be doing a, a deep dive. Thanks to Taylor, she's going to be hearing some some people who know Santa Lavera going to be bring me through the universe. And and I've have started read one book. There's a lot of great things about it. But I'm I'm not an Uber Sanderson fan. But it's not about that. I, I really, it's it was so much like sour grapes because, as the aptly that the journalist did point out, this is one of the most successful writers of the planet. Oh, but he's a successful writer that nobody heard about. Well, that's kind of a contradiction there. Like you know, the man is one of the most successful writers of the planet, fantasy or otherwise. And yes, and it was very belittling the way he. Uh, went after fancy fans because fancy fans, sci-fi fans come in all kinds of different colors, shapes, shades, types, yes. faiths, you right. name it. So, you know, that was, that was, he denigrated, you know, a lot of people in, in that article. And I, that was, and, you know, I think, and whether he did that just for the, maybe he did that just for the shot, maybe he did that to get the buzz on his article because he knew that it was going to be controversial. People were going to be talking about it. It could have been just a shop value. Who knows? But, I think he's going to be, uh, he's going to face some, I wouldn't be surprised they take it off wired. I wouldn't be surprised if the editors eventually just go, just yank that. And, uh, you know, because, because it was so offside. It was so offside. Well, it had, A, hasn't been taken down yet, which I, I don't think any of the editors have even read the comments to any of their tweets because there's just this 
like stream of tweets and none of them respond. Like it's almost like they threw the tweets out and just like went on vacation and were like, you know, I'm heck with that. But when I first read the article, I actually thought it was a joke. I thought, oh, Sanderson's Maybe in too. on this. This can't be a real article, right? Yeah. He couldn't have stayed at this guy's house and then stabbed him in the back like this, right? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I'm just going to keep checking Sanderson's Twitter feed. He's going to be like, uh, you know, because Sanderson does have that kind of sense of humor. So I was like, all right, it's an over-the-top joke piece. It's probably satire. What? And it and hours went by. And once it got to be like 10 hours and Brandon Sanderson still hadn't responded to it, hadn't tweeted it out, and I'm like, something's up. And then I'm like, this, this, this is real. This is really awful. And it was. It was real. This guy actually, you know, tried to make a name for himself by, you know, just basically just, you know, it was a totally sensational article. Like, no reason for it. There is zero chance to... that article is going off of Wired. Zero chance. No, so I think, many a, I think they're trolling. Yeah. They're trolling him. It's they knew what they were doing. When was the last time anyone gave it? Sorry, I was about to curse. When was the last time anyone <laughs> cared about Wired? Like who cared? I mean, nobody talks about Wired, but here yeah. we are talking about yeah, Wired. Right. And it's mm-hmm. just they're just trolling him. It was just yeah. a troll. And the editors know what they're doing. They they know exactly what they're doing. This is all and really who comes out the best is Sanderson because he handled it really yeah. well. Kudos to him for the way he responded to it, but he comes out, I think, looking better than anyone in the whole situation because he yeah. looks like, you know, he got taken advantage of. But yeah, why are they, they know exactly what they're doing. It's all for traffic and clicks, and that's all it's about. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right, because they're going to get millions and millions and millions of, of hits on that article and millions of responses, negative, even if it's all vitriol against the article and the journalist. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're probably right, Steve. And you're right, Wired is not a cultural icon, you know, the way it may think it is right you know um so yeah no you're probably right that's an excellent point you're probably right. then, that's kind of like the dichotomy though it's like all right so everybody i see a lot of people on twitter going you know you just you know you're giving this whole thing oxygen you know you're making this guy famous and i get that i get that but at the same time like i feel like if someone is acting in in, in a bad way you know in bad faith that i feel like you have to call them out on it right and I get the, you know, oh, you know, they've gotten more clicks than whatever. But at the same time, like, I, I don't think you could be quiet about it. So it's like, what do you do, right? You, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, right? But I would rather call this writer out on, you know, his bad behavior. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, rather than just ignore it and have it sit out there unchallenged, right? Because it's, it's you know, it's not right. Yeah, that's interesting because we've definitely seen a lot of toxicity in like fan art discourse over the last maybe 10 years with the internet becoming more and more popular. That's a good point. I haven't, I hadn't thought of it that way as a kind of, because Wired is at least a bigger platform than like a Facebook comment as just sort of a repudiation Mm -hmm. of this kind of discussion of art because as a lot of people have pointed out, it's not even like if he just wanted to write a critique of Sanderson's work, I that probably would have been so much more interesting. But instead, it was just like ad hominem's attacks on the man himself because he's this rich writer, but nobody's heard of him and he's schlubby and boring. Like, who says writers are supposed to be interesting anyway? They're supposed to be, you know, little shriveled people in dark closets typing away. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I mean, he even attacked 
his uh, professorial credentials. He attacked, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it's not like, I mean, okay, well, you know what you want to say to the guy, can you just go, not, well, maybe he can after this article, can you get tenure at a university and, and start and start lecturing just because, you know, you're just so great? Like, do you know what I mean? It, it's just like yeah. you're, you're attacking somebody who has all these things and has established all these things through their own hard work and years of experience and years of writing. And yeah, Brandon Sanderson is what he is now, but he, he made himself into that, right? Like, you know, so, so I think give the man some credit for, you know, I think, you know, 99.9% of writers of sci-fi writers, officially fantasy writers in the world would, would, would do anything to have certainly his sales, um, if, if not his acclaim. Right. So, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it's more, I think it's a lot more too of a hater's going to hate kind of thing where, you know, um, you know, like Brandon Sanderson, again, like th- this guy is only going to make Brandon Sanderson look better. And Brandon Sanderson is probably going to sell more books, even just out of somebody feeling bad. But it's so, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, who wins, right? I, I think Ward may win temporarily, but eventually that article will be forgotten about and Brandon Sanderson will continue to sell millions and millions of copies, so. Yeah, I think uh, I think in that article we see on display uh, a person who cannot turn their wishes into passions. And one of the reasons why that article has gotten so much attention from everybody is just to do with all of us looking at kind of the quasi-pathology of the, the person who wrote that after spending time with Brandon. It's just, it's very strange in and of itself because it also, from what I saw, he'd read, he said, maybe 20 some of Brandon's books, but he's a terrible author. Right. And that's, yeah. and that, that right. to me really just, that that's what really smacks of the jealousy. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, I, if you don't like him, just stop reading him then. Or do you like him? And you don't want to admit because you think you're hotshot that this person that Brandon Sanderson is, is like way more successful than certainly you've been. And at some point, maybe you just got to admit he's the better guy. Yeah, because the odds of that guy from Warwick being as successful as Brandon Sanderson are infinitesimally negative that it won't happen. (laughs) And um you know i say this again like for anybody who's written a book writing one book is a huge accomplishment and writing one book that sells you know whatever the average copies are uh, you know a book sells you know i think it's it's self-published it's, it's a couple hundred and traditionally published a couple thousand average i'm saying in his lifetime like well brandon centers is kind of eclipsed that so you know like um if you're mad at that then write your own Mistborn. you know what i mean like like instead of instead of beating on the guy that that you know that that made it right so i feel like for me it was a it was a larger scale example of when we talk about how to not review a book mm. <laughs> you know when we, if you go, want to go small scale when you review a book you don't talk about the author uh you talk about the work that you're reviewing and this was just a, a big example of that and how that shows more about the person writing it than the person they're writing about. Because when I was re- reading the article, the whole time I was like, okay, buddy, you got some, you got some internal work to do. Like my reaction was about <laughs> the author, not the not Brando Sando. Because when, when you get 
enough into the article, you're like, okay, I'm just not going to believe anything this guy says because clearly he has an agenda. So the rest of the article was just me cringing at this guy. Like, I think someone needs some therapy. Like, I don't know what you're going through, but you, you put some stuff on this page. <laughs> I don't know if you want the world to see. So I think it's kind of more of a reflection of him than the subject. And bad reviews are the same way. You can read it and be like, oh, this review is useless to me because this person just hates the author. And then you move on and you you don't use that review to, to make a judgment about the book. So it just seemed like a larger scale version of that. And if, if he's willing to air his dirty laundry for those clicks, I mean, cool, but no one's going to want to hang out with you after that. <laughs> who hurt you? Is this? <laughs> exactly. Who hurt you? Yes. That was my reaction to that article. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And the the time always flies. We're already coming up almost two hours. But before we go, I wanted to ask Nick, and I I hope that no time's passed. But I wanted to ask you how you're feeling because as a Bills fan, I, my heart gets broken every single year. So I can I you know we we can bond with heartbreak. You know, you're cutting me how deep. Are you here, Steve, you're cutting how, me deep. How are you holding up? It, 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 I was I was rooting for I was rooting for them. I just. So I, I I'm I'm still kind of not over it. I'm on honestly. <laughs> I really thought we were at the halftime we were going to win the Super Bowl, and yeah, yeah. I, hey, I'm used to it. I'm a Philadelphia sports fan. <laughs> this is I have so many calluses from disappointment over the years. So it was just another one. Better luck. He seems so nice. Move on. He seems so nice for a Phillies fan. You know, <laughs> Phillies fans will be mean, angry. So, so no, that's a misconception. There's 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 a small loud segment of philly fans that are like that and they're the ones that call up the sports radio stations the same 500 people right but the vast majority are realists and are actually knowledgeable sports fans um it's just the crazy ones that get all the, the publicity so just like with anything else it's always the loud like you know crazy ones that that and then everyone says oh yeah that's the Philly fan base. It's 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 not the majority of my friends. We're all the same. We're just we just want to see our team win. It's like we'll every back. Movie, you know, we got a nice young, great young quarterback. I love nice young... We finally, yeah, I love that. Oh my god, I, yeah, we're gonna be good. Nice young nucleus. You guys will be. You guys will be fine. You're set for the next. So year, glad. So. so glad we finally got the quarterback. But yeah, better luck next year. Thank you for your support, Steve. <laughs> hey, I, I I can I can relate because I'm still not over wide right. Scott Norwood, right? Oh my gosh! So and Steve, now you go five years in a row. Didn't you go wow. to Super Bowl four years in a row? I lost all four of them. I'm sorry. Yeah, that that would kill me. I, yeah, those are. At least you guys have times. hope. My hometown is DC, so. Oh, oh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a, at least you have Taylor? hope. <laughs> Taylor, I'm a, I'm a Washington fan, Commander. You are. I am. Wow, that's we my team. Together. Yeah, but your other teams are great. You guys won a Stanley yeah. Cup not too long ago. You won the World Series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Our friend uh, Chris. Chris is a Commanders fan too. Oh, is he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, I knew yeah. I liked him. I knew I liked Scotland. him. Yeah. I knew I liked him. I knew I liked that. him. Okay. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> what about you, Tom? Are you a sports fan? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a big sports fan. To tell you the truth, this is kind of funny, Taylor, because you're in Japan. Is uh, about 10, 12 years ago, I started watching a lot of sumo on YouTube mm. and I got into the sport and uh, the great, you know, record breaking Yokozuna Hakuho recently retired. And so the sport will never be the same. We've just slowly all been trying to pick up the pieces ever since then. Ever since. Yep. 
I've been extremely lucky to be able to sit in like the courtside seats at one point. Oh, it's have a, you? Yeah, we, wow. we had a, a friend who has those seats and those seats are always on TV. So you have yeah. to fill them. And he was like, I can't make this weekend. Do you want to go? And I was like, I volunteer as tribute, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I went for it. So um, it's to experience it that close. It's like two mountains meeting. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Crush me, I almost giant, got man. squished. Oh, yeah, you did? I almost oh, no. Did I almost did. Yeah. There was an old man in front of me who barely <laughs> moved out of the way. It was, <laughs> there's nothing blocking you from them, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, it's crazy. It's an incredible yeah. sport. Yeah. And uh, Alicia's from originally from Philadelphia. Oh, so, hey. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Some, okay. some representing Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> but uh, before we sign off, uh, Nick, where can people find you if they're looking for you and your uh, your great reviews? Sure. Um, my blog is Out of This World SFF, and I lurk on Twitter a lot. Uh, Nick Borelli. Uh, my handle is at N I C K R V W S. I don't like vowels, like I always say. <laughs> but yeah, that's where you'll find me. And Tom, if someone's looking for you or to buy your books, where can, where's the best place to find you? Oh, I am uh, online on Twitter at Tom underscore mock. And right now that's really the best place to find me. And there's a my book to link on there. If you want to just go to my Twitter and you can click through and it'll direct you to wherever you are in the world of Amazon. And you can pick it up there if you're interested. Yes, and those, uh, those links are in the description. So everybody be sure and, and check those out. Highly recommended. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Taylor and PL, where can people find you? You can find me on my booktube channel, Made Between the Pages, written right here. Uh, I do page chewing with Stephen PL. So you will see the three of us together quite often. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well. Um, my Twitter handle and all of those links are always in the description of my videos. So I find that's probably just the best hub to go to. Uh, and on Before We Go blog as well, I am a reviewer and an assistant editor over there. So you can see my reviews on Before We Go blog. Very nice. And uh, PL, where can people find you? Again, as Taylor said, between, beside you and Taylor on page chewing, both Friday conversations and main page chewing, other page chewing, whatever we want to call it. Uh, and then uh, before we go blog, we got to get a name down for that. Yeah, <laughs> we do, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And before we go blog as well, where I'm also an assistant editor, um, Goodreads reviews uh, to uh, my website, www.pilstuart.com. That's more about the books. The John Kingdom Saga, I have two books out. Uh, another one, Coming Lord and King, is dropping in the next, well, soon. Uh, it's very soon. And book three. And uh, Twitter is my preferred social media handle. I have Facebook and Instagram, but let's face it, I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot. So that's at P.L. Stewart writes one word. Nice. And, uh, of course, you can find me at Steve Talks Books here on YouTube, Steve Talks Movies. On Vero at that one mf -er, or on pagechewing.com is the best place to, to find me. So thanks, everyone, for taking the time out of their Friday or Saturday morning for Taylor to uh, to hang out and chat with us. Really appreciate everyone's time. Thanks, everyone, for coming by and interacting in the chat. It's always a great time. So thanks, everyone, and uh, for making Fridays a fun time. So we will see everyone back here in two weeks. And until then, everyone have a great rest of your weekend.
Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on.